book of Samuel, chapter 22. This recounts part of one of the episodes when David was fleeing from Saul. 1 Samuel 22, and we'll read through chapter 23, verse 18. 1 Samuel 22, beginning at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height, with his spear in his hand, and his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their, their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Now they told David, 
Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said to him, or, and Saul said, rather, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and, and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. So far from the word of God. After David had heard that news about Saul coming to the priests of Nob and killing the entire city of Nob, he wrote Psalm 52. So let's sing that song also as we reflect on these events. Three, the verses 15 through 18. It's just a few verses, so let's read those again now. For Samuel 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home.
brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is a true friend like? What qualities does he or she need to have? That's one of the questions we'll be looking at this morning. Here's another. Are Christian friendships different in some fundamental way from other friendships? To put it another way, people often say there's a special tie that binds friends together. Is that tie different for Christians than it is for other friends? One more question. How badly do we need Christian friendships? Can we make it without them? Those are all some of the questions we'll be looking at this morning as we examine 1 Samuel 23. Here's our theme. At a horrible hour, God sent David, a true friend, to encourage him. And we'll be looking first at the bond of that friendship, that that tie that bound these two friends together. And then secondly, the outworking of that friendship, how it looked in practice. And because we're just parachuting, as it were, into the middle of this narrative, we'll also have to lay out some of the broad outlines so we can get some sense of where we are. The book of of 1 and 2 Samuel was originally one book, a record of the earliest history of Israel. And it's good to realize from the beginning, it wasn't just a record of the facts. In fact, they had other books that were records of the facts. This is a book that's told from a certain perspective, from a prophetic perspective, from the perspective of God, and it highlights certain themes as it retells the history of Israel. We're not sure who the author is. Maybe Samuel himself wrote part of it, maybe some other prophet, but it's told from God's perspective, and you realize that very quickly as you get into the book. And as you read through, there there are several themes that are drawn out to the surface. For example, one theme you realize very quickly, there are two kinds of people in First and Second Samuel. There's Penina, Samuel's stepmother, and her world revolves around herself and her children and the dynasty that she's building. And then there's Hannah, Samuel's mother, who wants children, but even more, she's devoted to her God, and so she brings her prayers to God and lives her life before God in faith, even as long as she doesn't have children. Or there's Eli and his sons. These are rotten men, robbing the people, or at least his sons were, sleeping with the women as they came to the tabernacle. And Eli, their father, was a pushover. He never did anything about what his sons were doing. And then on the other hand, you have Samuel, raised to fear God from his earliest youth, devoted to God and dedicated to him, and living his life from his youth to his old age in integrity. Or you have Saul, a man who's initially humble, a good warrior as well, but you realize quickly he has a higher commitment to himself and to his own kingdom than to God's kingdom. And then on the other hand, you have his son Jonathan, who is a man committed to God's kingdom instead of to himself. So you have these two lines of people in 1 and 2 Samuel. And it's good to realize they don't always trace out biologically either. You You have Hannah, sometimes they do. You have Hannah and her son Samuel, both devoted to the Lord. 
But then other times you would have Samuel devoted to the Lord and then his sons who became not such good men. Or you have Saul who was not committed to the Lord, but then his son Jonathan who was. So they don't always trace out biologically these lines of people that Samuel traces. Every person has to make that decision for themselves. And the book of Samuel calls us as readers to do that as well, to look at ourselves in our own lives and ask, what is our highest allegiance? Which line of people do we find ourselves in? What are we committed to at the deepest, at the heart level? Let's talk about Jonathan. Here's a man who's radically committed to God's kingdom and to God's people, to a degree that you would almost say is borderline reckless. You meet him first in chapter 14. This is long before we meet David. It's an early moment in Saul's kingdom. And in that moment, you have a a battle with the Philistines. They have a huge army that they've mustered against Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. A giant army. And the Israelites are totally unprepared for that kind of attack. They try to get their troops together. But all they can find are 600 men to fight these 36,000 chariots and horsemen. It's a hopeless battle. And in that scene in chapter 14, you find the Philistines don't even bother to attack the Israelites because nobody wants to be one of the dozen or so men that actually dies in that battle. So they try to wait it out, hoping that Israel surrenders. And then you meet Jonathan for the first time in verse 6 of chapter 14. And he says to his armor bearer, let's go over there and attack those Philistines. Who knows what God might do? God doesn't need numbers. So here's a man who carries on the legacy of Hannah and Samuel. That faith, that commitment to God that seems almost reckless unless God really can do what they believed he could do. He's a courageous man, a man of faith, and a man who's also frustrated with the lack of perspective in God's people in Israel. Well, a few chapters later, some five to ten years later, we meet David for the first time. This is chapter 17 when David fights Goliath. And David also, here's a man who's radically committed to God's kingdom, again to a degree that seems fearless and almost even reckless. And like Jonathan, he can't stand to see how cowardly God's people were being at the time. He goes to the troops, asking the soldiers, troop after troop, who is this uncircumcised Philistine Goliath that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then when he comes up against Goliath in chapter 17, verse 45, he says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give you the dead bodies of the hosts of the Give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the peoples of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So that's the kind of man that David was, courageous, committed to to the Lord and to his kingdom, and fearless, for he knew what the Lord could do. 
That's the kind of man that David was. And it's on that same day that he comes up and kills Goliath that these two men, David and Jonathan, meet each other for the first time. That's in chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished debriefing to Saul, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So that's the tie that bound these two men together, the tie that was at the heart of their friendship. These are men that come from totally different backgrounds. One is the king's son, and one is a shepherd boy. But they are men that are cut out of the same cloth and that are driven by the same faith. And they form what is probably the most famous friendship in all of history. Now, there are many friendships built on other things, similar life circumstances, maybe similar interests, and those are all good friendships. There's nothing wrong with those. But there's no friendship like the friendship of faith, the friendship that is built on a heartfelt mutual commitment to God and to his kingdom. It's stronger even than the bond between fellow soldiers on the battlefield, soldiers that fight together, go home as brothers, and any one of them would die for any other. And yet after they go home, they go to their different causes, they begin living for their different kingdoms, and many of them find themselves on very opposite sides of the political divide or the spiritual divides in our country. But true Christians, they have a lifelong, heartfelt desire to see God's name lifted up high, and that Desire runs deeper than any other desire in the human heart. It goes deeper than anything else, and it makes a friendship that is that much stronger. Now, there's lessons to be learned from that for our friendships, but let's leave those to the side for a moment so that we can get into the details of the story here. We find David in chapter 23 in the wilderness of Ziph. That's the southern edge of the kingdom of Israel, and it's an absolute wasteland. There's a few small communities here and there, but it's mostly dry desert with plenty of rocky hiding places, which are called strongholds in in the text of, of the Old Testament. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how in the world did David, the, the man who killed Goliath and who served in the king's court, How did David end up here in the wilderness of Ziph? What's going on? Well, what's going on is a problem in the the heart of Saul, the king of Israel. We see this problem beginning to grow already in the earlier chapters of the book. At first, he's a strong warrior and there's a lot of hope for him. He's a head taller than anyone else in Israel and he conquers a city It saves the city from Philistine conquerors, rather. But as as we move along in the book of Samuel, we start to realize this man, Saul, is committed to something else than the kingdom of God. At first, it's not very visible, just a few side comments or uh, uh, what seems to be a bad attitude. But eventually, it becomes very obvious this man has a wrong heart commitment And it becomes a bigger and bigger problem until we get to the point where he's trying to kill David because God has made David a threat to his kingdom. 
So we see sin growing up in the heart of Saul from something very small and subtle to something very obvious that everyone in Israel is able to see. The irony of it all is that Saul's own son, Jonathan, right from the beginning, wants nothing to do with Saul's ambitions. And Saul, you realize as you go through the book, Saul picks up on this and it makes him furious. And by the time we get to these chapters, Saul is unable to listen to the voice of reason. Jonathan and others have gone to him and said, why are you trying to kill David, who's a man who's loyal to you? But Saul is unable to listen to any reason. He doubles down, and it seems he's thinking, I'll just kill him, and then I'll let my conscience worry about that later. And so we find David in the wilderness of Ziph, fleeing from Saul. It's a horrible situation. As he's fleeing, he gets help from Ahimelech, the priest, and he doesn't want to make Ahimelech guilty before Saul, so he tells Ahimelech that he's on a secret mission from Saul. And of course, David has always worked for Saul, so Ahimelech believes that story, and he helps him out. He has no idea what's going on between Saul and David. So he helps David because he's loyal to Saul and loyal to God. But Saul, when he hears about it, as we read in chapter 22, Saul is furious that in his view, Ahimelech has betrayed him because he went to help David. And Saul refuses to listen to any voice of reason. Ahimelech tells him he always thought that David was loyal. He had no idea what was going on. But Saul refuses to listen, has no compassion at all. And it doesn't even matter that Ahimelech is the priest of God. That's how degenerate Saul has become by this point. And so he commands his servants to kill Ahimelech and to kill all the priests there at Nob. It's very obvious by this point, Saul's mission has nothing to do at all with God's kingdom, no matter what Saul wants to say about that mission. Even the king's own servants wouldn't carry out the order, so he has to get Doeg, an Edomite, to actually do it. And he does. He kills all of the priests, and then he turns to Nob, the city of the priests, And as we read in in verse 19 of chapter 22, Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, both child and even helpless infant, ox also, donkey and sheep, he all put to the sword. It's a terrible, horrible situation. So much bloodshed because of David having been there. And that's where Psalm 52 That's what Psalm 52 was written out of. That's David's reaction when he hears about what happened to the city of Nob because he stopped there. And this, you see again in Psalm 52, the song that we sing, you see the character of David, the kind of man that he is. Instead of despairing, he says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Referring probably especially to Doeg the Edomite and to Saul himself. He says, why do you boast of evil? God will break you down forever. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted instead in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That's the kind of man that David was. He sees this horrible event through the eyes of faith. He knows that God will do justice, that God is working, even in such a horrible situation. He puts his trust in God. And finds his hope again in God. 
Well, then we find David now in, in hiding in the wilderness of Ziph, and he hears, as he's hiding, he hears about the city of Keilah being attacked by a group of Philistine raiders. And again, you see, you think, what a man of God. He hears about the city of Keilah being attacked, and in his own situation, he still decides to help. He decides to come to their aid. He's in no position at all to be helping others. He himself is fleeing for his life, and yet that's his reaction to seeing God's people in distress. David's own men think he's crazy at the beginning of verse uh, of chapter 23, 20, yeah, chapter 23, verse 3, David's men say, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? But David inquires of the Lord. That's his default heart reaction. He goes to the Lord, and the Lord encourages him to go ahead with it. So he does, and he completely decimates the armies of the Philistines and saves the city. Well, after saving a city, you might expect some gratitude from the people living there. But Scripture is so true to life. Welcome to the real world. What matters most to most people? saving their own skins. Maybe they're throwing a huge party for David now, but as soon as they realize that danger is coming because David is inside that city, that party is going to be over very quickly. There's no loyalty there in that city. So David goes to God and asks God, what's going to happen? Is Saul going to come against this city? And are the people of this city going to hand me over? And God answers both questions in the affirmative, yes, They are going to hand you over to Saul. So David flees to the wilderness of Ziph. From there, there's nowhere else to go. To the north and to the east is all Saul's kingdom. It would be a matter of days before David was found. To the west is the Philistines where he could have fled. He fled there before. But now there's a price on his head because he just decimated their armies. And they are horrible, violent men who tortured their enemies. And then to the south is the wilderness, just small villages, abandoned wasteland. And it's not long even there before people are going to find out where he is and before Saul is going to come after him. We can imagine how discouraged David would have been at this time. Maybe he looked back on Samuel's promise that he would one day be king. certainly didn't seem likely in that moment in his life. And what about God's people? Were they a source of encouragement to him? Were they zealous for God's name? No, they were traitors. They were going to hand him over to Saul. They weren't concerned for the name or for the honor of God. None of Saul's own servants did anything about the city of Nob being put to the sword. Well, then in verses 15 to 18, Jonathan, Saul's son, comes to pay him a visit. That old friend of David Evidently, some people knew where David was and weren't telling Saul, because that's how Jonathan must have been able to find him. And we read in verse 15 that Jonathan came and strengthened David's hand in God. What a sweet relief that would have been for David. Jonathan would have shared his love and his passion for the Lord's name, for the Lord's honor, for God's kingdom And David would have needed that reminder so badly, a reminder of who he is, a reminder of who his God is, and a reminder of what God is doing even in those dark times. 
And we can see how David, or rather how God looks after David in even the darkest of times, not necessarily by pulling him out of that situation, but by providing him a friend who shared the same faith in the midst of that very bleak situation. We can only imagine the kinds of things that these two old warrior friends would have talked about. Surely a lot more than you see recorded in verse 17. Maybe they rehashed old times. Maybe Jonathan talked, uh, told David again about how people felt when he defeated Goliath in front of the entire Philistine army. Maybe Jonathan told David about those old times when he and his armor bearer came up against the Philistines to attack their armies when all the odds were against them. We don't know what they all talked about. All our text tells us is Jonathan came and strengthened his hand in God. He reminded David who he was. He reminded him who God is. And he reminded him of his old courage and his old love for the kingdom of God and points his hope back to God. And this, this above everything else, is what friends are for. To lift each other up. To help each other remember who we are. To strengthen one another's hand in God. To help each other remember who God is. To remind one another of God's justice and God's righteousness, even in very dark times. And to help one another find hope and strength again. Verse 17 does give us one detail of what they talked about that day. Jonathan pointed David back to that promise from God that he would one day be king. And of course, that's not what David was fighting for. It wasn't his ultimate goal to become king. He probably would have been very happy to just go back to being a shepherd. But Jonathan reminds him of this to bring him back to the right perspective. God is not going to let that evil go on forever. He never does. Even though it lasts for a time, God will bring it to an end. It's not even clear if Jonathan knew about the promise that Samuel made to David, that David would be king. Nowhere do we read that Jonathan heard about that promise. He might have known, but he did know that David would become king. He had the wisdom to see his father's kingdom crumbling because of the idolatry and sin that was right there at the heart of that kingdom. And he had the wisdom to see God's hand at work through David. And it's it's good to notice Jonathan even says that even Saul knew that David was going to be king. Even Saul could recognize that that was what was going to happen. And as, as we think about that, notice how differently Saul on the one hand and Jonathan on the other, how differently they respond to God's sovereignty. Both of them recognize that Saul's kingdom isn't going to last forever. And both of them recognize that God is working through David and that David is going to become king. But they react so differently to God's sovereignty. Saul resists it even to the very end, whereas Jonathan embraces it. And that's because Saul loved his own kingdom more than he loved God's kingdom, whereas Jonathan was very happy for God's kingdom to prosper, even if that meant his own kingdom would diminish. 
our own motives, our true motives, so often become clear in those moments where God forces us to make that choice between our own personal kingdoms, our own little kingdoms, and God's kingdom. When we have to make that choice, then it becomes clear what matters most to us at the deepest part of our hearts. It's good to notice, too, in in these words from Jonathan that this isn't inspired prophecy that, that Jonathan says here. He's just a wise and godly man. He recognizes that his father's kingdom is crumbling and that God is working through David. In fact, things don't end up happening 100% as Jonathan, as Jonathan said. He says in, in, verse, in verse 17 that you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. And in the Hebrew, that's a very common phrase for second in command. Well, in fact, that never happened. Jonathan died in battle before he ever could be second in command. But that's, that's not the point. Jonathan only has the wisdom to recognize what's happening. What God does with Jonathan is up to God. That's God's plan. That's up to him to decide. And his point is simply, God is with you, David, and so am I. And I am fully willing to stand next to you as second in command. God is not going to let this evil of my father's kingdom go on forever. So let's look together to God. So he calls David back to that same faith. How important it is to have that kind of friendship where we call one another back to our faith in God, to trust in God again in very dark circumstances. Especially in horrible moments like this, Christian friendship is more valuable than ever. Then in verse 18, Jonathan and David make a covenant. And you see, they make that covenant before the Lord, before the face of the Lord, just like they lived their entire lives in integrity before the face of the Lord. It's not the first covenant they made with each other. They've made several at this point, but it's a renewal of that same commitment to support one another because they together loved God and his kingdom. And you see the irony of this moment. The very future of Saul's kingdom, his own son, Jonathan, is making a covenant with David, is committed to God's kingdom instead of Saul's kingdom. So what do we make of this moment for ourselves here in 2016? What's there for us to learn from what happened so long ago? Let me offer three suggestions as we reflect on this text. First, we see God preparing his kingdom through his servants. God is bringing down that corrupt, idolatrous monarchy of Saul, and he's doing so through the work of men like Jonathan and men like David. God is working to touch the hearts of his people, to confront their idolatry. And we see with the city of Keilah that there is so much idolatry in God's kingdom. So many people that are living for something else besides God. And God is working to break down those little kingdoms so he can establish his own kingdom. Any progress that will ever be made in the growth of God's kingdom, this has always been true, it was true then and it's true today, will always be made when God blesses the faith and the determination and the suffering of his servants, as he did with David and Jonathan. 
And so we can ask ourselves, how is God building his kingdom and his church here today in Alora? We know that that will only happen when our efforts and our sacrifices are in it. That's how God builds his kingdom, through the effort, through the sacrifice, through the suffering of his servants. Yes, he is sovereign. He will build his kingdom, even in spite of those who refuse to participate. But he will do so through the faith and determination and work and suffering of those whom he has called to work in his kingdom. And of course, that includes all of his people. So, we see God building his kingdom through David and Jonathan. And as we reflect on that, we know that that is how God also builds his kingdom among us today. Secondly, we see David and Jonathan giving us a picture of what it means to live by faith in God. And I would argue that's a picture that also points us to Christ. It's the same faith that, uni- that unites David and Jonathan that also unites them with Daniel, with Isaiah, with Abraham, with all of the saints of the Old and New Testament. And that is a faith that is seen perfectly in Christ. That's why we can say in a sense that even though they lived long before Christ, David and Jonathan, because they walked by that same pattern of faith that is seen perfectly in Christ, We can say they imitated Christ beforehand, even though they lived long before him. They walked by that same pattern of faith that we see in Christ that's embodied perfectly in him. In fact, Hebrews says that Christ is the author of that faith. Christ, even before he was born as as man, he was working by inspiring and and authoring the faith of men like David and Jonathan. Their faith came from Christ. And that statement from Hebrews is worth a sermon all on its own as we reflect on how Christ is at work in building faith even in the Old Testament. And we can see this in in David. If we just look at David for a moment, we see David anointed and chosen by God, just like Christ was, and also rejected by God's people, just like Christ was, and yet still trusting in God, obedient in God, even to the point of death, if need be, willing to lose everything, even his own life, for the sake of God's kingdom. And that's the pattern of faith, true faith, in every generation it's the pattern of faith that First and Second Samuel call us to walk in. It's that same pattern that we see in Hannah and Samuel and Jonathan and David and in so many others that we encounter in, in this book. And as we follow in that pattern then, let us look to Christ, who's not only the author of that faith, but also the perfect exemplar of what that faith looks like embodied As we look to David and we look to men like Jonathan or men like Samuel, we should look even more to Christ who embodies that faith perfectly. We can learn from these men who were a lot like us, but they also looked to God. And so if we're going to follow their example, we too will have to look to God. And so when we're discouraged in the struggle of faith, consider how much more Christ was discouraged. When we're called to suffer, consider how much more he was called to suffer and how perfectly he did so. 
When obedience seems impossible, consider how impossible it seemed for David and how much more impossible still it seemed for Christ when he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and pleaded with God and yet still said at the end of the day, Your will be done. So David then and Jonathan provide us a picture of Christ. We can learn from David, but as we do so, let's look even more to the one who inspired his faith, to Christ, to the author of his faith, and the perfect model of that faith. And the same can be said for Jonathan. Think of of him like David. He was a man of the same faith, the same courage, looking to God, finding his strength in God, even rebuking God's people for their lack of courage. And, And that faith, that runs in him is stronger and higher and deeper than any other commitment. You see that in David and Jonathan. And in, in Jonathan here in, in this chapter, we also see something of the cost of discipleship that Christ warned us about. If you remember Christ in, in Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't deny his own mother and father, you think of Jonathan and Saul, and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. And so Jonathan embodies that, having forsaken his position as the next king in line and having forsaken even his own father to follow God's kingdom. He forsook all of that for God's sake. And in Jonathan, we also see something of what discipleship looks like and what it means to be a discipleship. He forsakes that high position because he would rather be counted With God's people. Think of what Christ said in Matthew 25, where he said, uh, People will look back on the final day and and they will say, Well, how did we serve you? And Christ will say, Well, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You think of Jonathan coming to David as he was hiding from Saul. And so we can ask ourselves also today, How are people in this church? Where are they serving God at their own cost and sometimes at very great expense? And are we standing by them? Are we supporting them? Are we encouraging them like Jonathan was with David? That's how Christ says we serve him, by visiting those who are serving him at great cost. Even in our own culture where outright persecution is still less common, those who love God and those who serve him are often ridiculed. And many in the church don't see it or don't stand behind it. And so this text is a good reminder to be men like Jonathan and women like him, coming to those who suffer and standing beside those who are sacrificing everything for the kingdom of God. Third, this text reminds us of the true purpose of Christian friendship, to help each other keep our eyes fixed on Christ. That's what Jonathan went all the way down to Ziph to do, and it's good to think about that. He, he didn't just stumble upon David and encourage him. No, he planned it. He knew that David had a need for encouragement, and so he went all the way down to Ziph to accomplish that, to serve him there. Many of us here in this church have that same faith, that same commitment as David. Friends like Jonathan come from the hand of God. 
Because God knows that we need that encouragement, especially as we're sacrificing our time and energy and money and everything that we have for the kingdom of God. So be ready to receive that friendship like David received it from Jonathan. Many of you have already made huge sacrifices for this church and for the kingdom of God. Your commitment to this church, your huge financial and time sacrifice for Christian education to raise your kids in the fear of the Lord, your leadership, your participation in other groups and events, you all know who you are. Well, the point is this. This can be costly, and this can sometimes be even discouraging as people don't stand behind us as we might hope for. God knows that we need friends who will stand next to us. So be ready to receive those kinds of friends. They come from the hand of the Lord. Maybe God has provided friends like Jonathan for you to encourage you and to keep your eyes focused on him. Let's receive that friendship. Let's enjoy it and let's celebrate and, and, and give thanks to God for such friendships. And maybe God is sending us to be like Jonathan to someone else. How can we strengthen others, other people's hand in God as they are serving and sacrificing Maybe there are some in this church who have been, as it were, in the wilderness of Ziph for many, many years, and we haven't even noticed it. How can we stand behind them and stand next to them? We need the eyes to see it, and we need the will to reach out like like Jonathan did with David. Jonathan saw that David needed it, and he planned it, and then he went there and supported David in that moment of need. So in summary, then, let's follow this same pattern of faith. Let's look to Christ like David and Jonathan did. And as we do that, we know we're going to need friends like David and like Jonathan. Let's receive that friendship. Let's be that kind of friend. And as we walk in faith towards the end, supporting one another as we work to build God's kingdom, let us always remember to strengthen one another's hand and look together to Christ. Amen.